0: welcome to the clinical consult a podcast from the national register of health service psychologists examining timely psychological trends and excellence in clinical practice i'm dr samuel Lusgarten. today i'm talking with dr alfonso mercado about the impacts and implications of policies of family separation. Dr. Alfonso Mercado is an associate professor in the Department of Psychological Science and Department of Psychiatry in the School of Medicine at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley and a licensed psychologist. His research focuses on Latino mental health, including immigration, trauma, and multicultural interventions. He is the co-author of Cultural Competency in Psychological Assessment, Working Effectively with Latinx Populations, an Oxford University Press book. Dr. Mercado is the immediate past president of the Texas Psychological Association, and in 2023 was appointed to the American Psychological Association Advisory Coordinating Committee. In 2021, Dr. Mercado received the American Psychological Association Early Career Psychologist Achievement Award for his research, clinical, and advocacy work with recently immigrated families along the U.S.-Mexico border. He has presented his research and clinical experience to U.S. Congress, including the U.S. Congressional Hispanic Caucus on the Mental Health Needs of Latino Children and Families. What a pleasure to have you here today, Alfonso. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me here. It's a pleasure. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, I... I reached out to you a little while ago because your work was featured in the Journal of Health Service Psychology, the National Register's uh, in-house journal, and you co-authored a, a paper with what looked like maybe three other graduate students at the time, at least. It was entitled, Donde Esta Mi Mama? And as soon as I finished it, I, I felt compelled, like, we've got to have you on here, Alfonso. Your work is really, really important. And... It became even more important and more critical, as we've discussed, when the uh, recent news came out about the 39 asylum seekers that were found dead in a detention center due to, a I think, a fire that uh, occurred in uh, the border town of Ciudad Juarez in El Paso. And so, you know, on this heavy kind of start to our podcast, I also want to state it made this, this topic of family separation so important to, to better understand, but also to to dig into like, what does this mean for us as psychologists? What, what can we do about this? Maybe inside and outside the therapy office. So I'm sure many of us have have heard about this, this idea that there were families being separated some years ago around 2018, but I'm wondering if we can take a deeper dive. What was happening then? That's a good question. <laughs> a lot was happening
1: uh, in 2018. Um, <clears throat> Right before that year, um, 2016, 17, right, uh, we were, um, my students and I were collecting data, we're doing research uh, with the asylum-seeking families um, on the U.S. side in in McAllen, Texas, at the Humanitarian Respite Center, uh, where they help, uh, you know, provide immediate uh, relief, shelter, food, clothing for the families that are, immediately released from immigration um, processing and the officials. Mm-hmm. The families are usually, once they're done being processed, they're they' um, <clears throat> they are uh, they're sent to the local bus station here in McAllen and the humanitarian respite centers just across the street conveniently. Wow. Um, and uh, during that time we were doing our first phase of our research with that population we were highlighting. Um, you know, health and trauma, we were looking at um, the Hispanic health paradox model and looking specifically at Latino cultural values and the role mm-hmm. in health. And we were doing, du- it was during that time. Um, so, you know, we were like in the middle of our, you know, research with those families. Of course, my students and I volunteer at that center too. We we volunteered maybe a year or two before we started research just to, you know, get to know the, the center mm-hmm. and our community uh, and the leaders right at the mm-hmm. at the respite center so you know we were doing research during that time and um fast forward summer of 18 um you know i was in in um in guadalajara jalisco at an mm-hmm. international conference and it was june i remember and i remember my phone just you know wow. multiple texts a lot of phone calls you know, it's, the university was like, Alfonso, where you're at, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, so, mm-hmm. and, and of course, that's when the media got wind of what was happening um, in McAllen. Uh, McAllen, Texas was ground zero of the family separations, um, which is where I live. Um, and here, just to give you more context about my role as a as a psychologist, not only a, an associate professor doing research at the university and and being part of the new doctoral program in clinical psychology and residency training in the School of Medicine, I also consult in the community, right? So I I consulted a practice, and um, you know one of the reasons I do that because where uh, we live here uh, in South Texas, we're considered an underserved community of healthcare. We're missing about 200 psychologists to meet national health standards. So I find it a uh, uh, You know, important for me to, you know, see clients in the community to help, you know, you know, with that gap. And one of the reasons why we got funding and started this new doc program. But anyways, so during that time, I remember right before the summer of 18, not only were we doing clinical research, the respite center, you know, I was, you know, seeing clients in the community, and I consult with the Office of Refugee Resettlement, uh, different shelters, you know, referred me um, unaccompanied minors, and I started uh, noticing before June of 18, Mm -hmm. isolated cases of children being separated. I was concerned, so I would speak with the lawyers. Mm -hmm. Many of them were from Pro Bar associations, the you know South Texas Legal Aid, and and many others, and and I would also, you know, consult with the caseworkers at the respite center, at the uh, Human uh, at the um at the shelters of O R that O R R contracts with, and I was concerned. I was like, hey, you know, this case, tell me more. You know, mm-hmm. the 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 child, the teenager. You know, th- they're sharing this with me, and you know, I haven't really you know, seen this, uh, but I'm seeing uh-huh. this trend. So I initially thought they were isolated cases, possible mm-hmm. human trafficking cases that sometimes fall through the cracks with, you know, ORR, but you know, that, it started before the summer of 18. And then mm-hmm. during that time when I was in Guadalajara doing a conference, that's when the media got wind of what was happening. Wow. So I immediately go to fly back home, you know, to, mm-hmm. to, um, to chaos, right? To crisis. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was, you know, very overwhelming, mm-hmm. you know, to to um to see children, right, um, in the clinical practice. Mm-hmm. I remember getting referrals uh that highlighted, you know, Dr. Mercado, does this child have autism? You know, he's not communicating, he's not. You know, eating. He's soiling himself. You know, it must be a neurodevelopmental disorder. You know, mm-hmm. um, other referrals highlighted psychosis. Right, Dr. Mm-hmm. Budegalu might be yeah. psychotic features. You know, schizophrenia. You know, mm-hmm. you know, and you know, upon a, uh, you know assessing and and you know under a cultural lens, right, um, and further investigating and um, and talking to the child and the children, right. I remember one case you know, the the staff are concerned because the the child wasn't eating. They thought he was psychotic because he was responding to internal stimuli, you know, at night pacing back and forth, rocking on his bed. And come to find out he was praying to his ancestors to be reunited with mom and dad. So many, many things like that during that time. Mm -hmm. Um, So, so yeah, so. I come to McAllen and, and a lot of media and um, there was a national crisis and, you know, the next thing you know, I'm all over the place, you know, uh, sharing the realities, right, of what these um, policies were causing. And fortunately, um, as you know, right, many of these unaccompanied minors and children, obviously these were family units that were separated, um, you know, experience trauma in their home countries. Mm-hmm. Many of them experienced trauma during their migratory journey, and let alone coming to the United States and seeking asylum, you know, further exacerbate the trauma, more trauma exposure, family separations, you know, so um, it, it was evident that these policies were causing abuse Right mm-hmm. So you know it was important to to share that and share the data that we had because remember we were already doing research, so I was just highlighting the 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 science, right and I was hoping to leverage that science to to advocacy and 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 you know and policy efforts.
0: Alfonso, the way you describe it, it sounds like. in in many ways, the the heart of good research, right, is like to be embedded in a community, to understand the community's needs and to be like responding to what the community's needs are, that like population health kind of model. And I'm hearing you ironically plugged into this community and trying to be directly involved in in there a mere two, three years before this all begins to, to explode in the media coverage that many of us can remember and then at that point you were there in the middle of it. I mean, that is such a uh, shocking thing to hear and the the idea that you're now in the midst of uh, a new trauma, if you will, as you detail that for these children and their families, that they may be coming from places where there was trauma and that migratory journey involved trauma and here they are and it's continuing here in the United States.
1: Yeah. And you know what, um, Sam, it, mm-hmm. you would think with the new administration, changes would come, but sure. fortunately, nothing has changed.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: There wow. has been, you know, we don't have the so-called title of the migrant protection protocols, mm-hmm. right, or the zero tolerance we don't have the zero tolerance policy, obviously, that caused that separation of thousands and thousands of children, right, who were misplaced, were sent to ORR as unaccompanied minors. They weren't in company. They were just separated and placed in different places, child protective services, adoption agencies, you name it, right? So, you know, the zero tolerance policy is no longer there, but family separations are still happening, but they're just being manifested differently, Right. Mm -hmm. We don't have MPP anymore. Migrant Protection Protocols, the title. Right. But everything's been repackaged in different ways. And and unfortunately remain in Mexico and Title 42 is still there. And uh, that's why we have thousands and thousands of families still living in tents in Mexico, Mm -hmm. exposed to even harsher conditions.
0: Well, let's let's talk a little bit about that you mentioned some policy titles and some organizations that I think would be really important for listeners to to make sure we're all on the same page mm-hmm. when you talk about the zero tolerance policy I'm wondering uh, if you can say more about what that was specifically versus this quote unquote remain in Mexico policy
1: yes well you know first you know the previous administration had the migrant protection protocols. Right. That really we already know didn't really protect people. Right. Um, And part of that, it it brought along different policies, you know, Um, an unrelated policy to the MPP was a zero tolerance policy that caused the separations of thousands of children, which, by the way, hundreds and hundreds have not been reunited yet. Uh, with their caregivers. Um, and, you know, we also had the Remain in Mexico, you know, policy, uh, which, you know, Title 42 and Remain in Mexico caused the immigration system to hold, right? Over at that time, it was over 850,000 immigration cases were, were seized. They, they weren't be- being heard because of COVID-19 pandemic. Now it's now it's over a million cases that have yet to be, you know, um uh, heard by a judge uh, or, or processed by, you know, immigration officials. So we have thousands and thousands of families still on the on the Mexico side. um and you know, these policies have um, you know, definitely um, you know, caused, a lot of um, psychological distress, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and some have died, you know, because they've been victims of further further crimes um, and, you know, traumatic experiences on the U.S.-Mexico border, kidnapping, torture, you know, um, Drowning in the Rio Grande, you know, mm-hmm. enduring harsh weather conditions. I remember the hurricane. I'm um, sorry, multiple hurricanes during this during the summers uh, after '18. Um, you know, that wiped the entire tent encampment out. You know, many families were, were were, you know, fighting for their lives on the river because it was right next to the Rio Grande. Um, we also had the winter storm Ori. Right. If you remember, that was a storm that that where Texas lost power for two weeks. You know, we had children, you know, in the tent encampments uh, screaming that they couldn't feel their feet. You know, or their fingers, because it was freezing. You know, and it was it was really, you know, my students and I would go volunteer. Right, we did fundraisers for you know the 300 children that lived in that tent encampment in Cameran, Matamoros, Tamaulipas, which is right across from the international bridge in Brownsville, Texas. Um, and it was it was saddening to see there was no U.S. relief. Or U.S. aid. Most of the organizations there providing relief were international ones, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and it, there, there was the U.S. Cro- the U.S. Uh, Red Cross wasn't there, or other, you know, American organizations weren't there um and we're just steps away from US soil right and and unfortunately we weren't there during that time but yes these policies unfortunately have further exacerbated trauma caused abuse of children and families and um you know but yeah it, it's it, and it,
0: it continues yeah and i i think that i wanted to to lean on that that what what i'm hearing you say repeatedly is that we may have a new administration, but the policies, generally speaking, remain, or many of the policies that are impacting refugees and asylum seekers remain.
1: Correct. Let let me give you an example, right? We don't have the zero tolerance policy anymore, right, that caused the 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 further you know abuse like family separation to these children mm-hmm. that are suffering not only suffered during that time the short-term effects of trauma i shared a couple case examples but as we know there's long-term effects right of separation too um but you know we're, we're looking at um you know uh other um you know cases too where uh you know the families are uh you know the family separations are being manifested differently, right? Mm -hmm. For example, the Remain in Mexico policy, Title 42, hundreds and thousands of, of, uh, you know, families are living in tents under horrible, you know, uh, living conditions. Mm -hmm. Um, I gave you different examples where the families were exposed to continuous, you know, trauma exposure, the weather, Mm -hmm. uh, victims of crime, right? So families make the decision of, Mm -hmm. Okay, I don't want my little Maria, you know, who's six years old, to be a victim of one, two, three. Mm. So I'm going to have my six year old walk the international bridge by herself and seek asylum as an unaccompanied minor. So parents, mothers, and fathers are making the decision themselves of family separation to make sure that Maria is alive, that Maria, little Maria, is safe and is now separated from her caregivers now under the ORR, Office of Refugee Resettlement, and being processed an accompanied minor, while mom and dad are, are remain in, in Mexico living in the refugee camps.
0: It's devastating to imagine, you know, as a parent myself. I, I, I can't imagine that. It's devastating. Mm-hmm. And Alfonso, I didn't know that I was going to ask you this, but as you talk through this, What I'm thinking is about how you and perhaps those that work with you are there too, or have been there historically in these moments. And I think a lot about like in our work as psychologists, I don't want to take away the spotlight from those that are really going through this firsthand, but the secondary traumatization of workers that help and try to assist during this exceptionally traumatic time. And in my mind, I'm thinking, gosh, how do you all deal with it too? Because this is heartbreaking to hear, and I'm not there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good question. You know, mm. um, I think self care is so important. Um, I have three doctoral students, just submitted my fourth one. Um, and, you know, self care in my lab is so critical. You yeah. know, and we recently finished the paper on the impact of working with forced migrants mm. as researchers. Well, there you go. Yeah. you know, because there's been, you know, um, an abundance of, of 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 research and scholarly work on the mm-hmm. on secondary trauma in clinical interventions, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and with therapy, right, uh, assessments, right? But doing research, there's mm-hmm. not a lot of, not a lot out there in the field on the impact of re- doing research work with this population. So we mm-hmm. just, um, you know, uh, submitted a paper, it's under review in one of the APA training journals and education journals to, to shed light into into mm-hmm. this, right? Mm-hmm. And we we provide recommendations in the field, you know, of guidelines, we need guidelines for, you know, for research, mm-hmm. um, for researchers that work in this population and that's a good question, Sam. May, May of mid-May the 16th. You know, um myself and you know, seven of my students, Dr. Man Venta from the University of Houston and her students. Um, we have a team. Team of 15 from La Universidad de Guadalajara, Jalisco, um, and a team from La Universidad Autónoma uh, de de Tamaulipas in Reynosa, our sister school across the border. We have a research team returning back to the the refugee camps in May. Um, Dr. Venta led an R01, and um, we were successfully funded, and Mm -hmm. we're going back. and, And part of the training and orientation to this research team highlights that. You know, mm-hmm. highlights that and focusing on strategies and, and ways we could manage, right, um, possible secondary trauma.
0: Mm-hmm. That's fantastic to hear. It, it's something that I think has been uh, left me wondering or curious much of the time when I look at the DSM-5, for instance, and we don't see those diagnostic figures or the secondary traumas or secondary victimization that can be present, especially for caregivers or those that are are trying to assist and help. Um, so I'm really, really excited to hear more about that. You're gonna have to keep us posted about this this article too, or the the future article. Yes, and absolutely. I want to dig in more about this this moment of let's say this daughter is walking across the bridge into the United States to try and seek help and refuge. What are the impacts? What are we learning? What do we know about how this impacts the psychological well-being of those families and the people involved?
1: That's a good question. Um, you know, <clears throat> given that you know the the the, uh, the the cases I've seen both in the research you know setting in the clinical setting on the on this side of the border um you know something that is evident is you know <clears throat> the trauma exposure is real right <clears throat> these policies and you know um uh, what they experience during this process is further exacerbating the trauma you know, um, during the 2018, when we were collecting data at the respite center, as I mentioned earlier, that data highlighted the alarming rates of trauma, symptoms, mm-hmm. and exposure with this population. We even did a psychometric study looking at the instruments we used, you mm-hmm. know, one of one measure, you know, the the, 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 the children and the families that we assessed, you know, they far exceeded the clinical cutoff scale of PTSD, and one of the measures that we used far exceeded it by sixteen points. You know, compared to the Western population, mm-hmm. right? Um, although we were seeing the, the 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 effects of trauma during the you know the, the short term effects, right? With this population. Um, you know we we did see that resiliency in these individuals mm-hmm. you know the, the 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 resiliency to fight and keep going you know and be, and being alive and staying alive because if they would have stayed in their home country they would have died you know um given the multiple you know cr- uh, crises that they're going through um and that resiliency and you know we explored the the latino cultural values and highlighted the health, the Hispanic health paradox model, you know, we did find a, a a relationship as, you know, as a, you know, as a protective factor, right, a buffer of negative health outcomes, but, but yeah, uh, I think, um, you know, the, what we're seeing is a humanitarian cri- crisis at the US Mexico border, no, no crisis of violence. Something that we usually see, you know, in the media. In fact, McAllen's one of the top safest cities in the country, you know. Um, and but people don't know that. Um, and yeah, the, you know, I think psychology can 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 definitely play a role at many fronts.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So one of the first things that I'm hearing from you is that. People that are taking measures of, of post-traumatic stress or traumatic stress are higher, are higher than, than average, but not just that, like they're scoring off the charts in many ways. The, the trauma that you detailed or the sort of like the, the synopsis of the timeline of getting here included trauma, trauma, and trauma. So it seems like by the time that that measure or any measure is given, we're talking about a complex and comprehensive or, or um, uh, like additive effect of all of these traumas compounding on one another. Absolutely, multiple layers, multiple yeah. layers. Yeah, and I'm I'm thinking about when we picture family separations or even the examples you've given us where like sometimes a child is separated from a parent or guardian or a guardian is saying to that child go are there differences in how parents or guardians are experiencing this versus children or how they're talking about the trauma Yeah,
1: that's a great question. Um, You know, when we were at the camps, um, you know, we we did see parents that were separated, right? Uh, Because like the little, the case of little Maria that I mentioned, um, it was evident that those parents were also, right, suffering, you know, um, were also, you know, affected, right, by that family separation, um, you know, and, you know, and being, and remaining in Mexico, being in 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 that in in that environment, right, um, you know, is it, not conducive to you know, um, trauma informed, you know, mm. care, even like the children that are being, you know, processed by immigration sending, you know, and then they go to ORR, for example, unfortunately, there's no trauma informed care in the the U.S. Mm. immigration detention system. Mm. Um, they They don't have that, even though I'm recommending that for the children. Right. And even for the adults that I assess on this side of the border, when I do other immigration evaluations and they're under U.S. custody, um, unfortunately, there is no trauma informed care, even though I'm recommending it. You know, I worked with um, APA, the American Psychological Association, um, their team, along with uh, Congresswoman Napolitano from California on an immigration mental health bill. Right, mm-hmm. highlighting the importance of mental health treatment Absolutely. You know, and trauma-informed treatment, not only to the children and the adults that are being mm-hmm. affected by the immigration system, but also to the law enforcement community, because they're being exposed to a lot mm-hmm. of a lot of events, you know, mm-hmm. that affect them. Um, so you know, there was some bipartisan support. The bill didn't go you know, further. But fortunately, I think, you know, it's being reintroduced. Um, But, you know, bills like that, you know, guarantee and and, and support that trauma-informed care, you know, across Mm -hmm. populations. Mm -hmm.
0: As you mentioned the trauma-informed care and, and applications of mental health in this context it, it makes me think about our very podcast the clinical consult is always trying to f- figure out hey what does this mean about the populations we serve and how do we home in on on that and and sharpen our skills too the the level of devastation and fear that we've detailed in the population that's being served and dealing with this is, is horrifying as we've mentioned and um I, fundamentally, I, I want to know, like, how, how do we help as psychologists and not just psych, psychologists on the border, but psychologists across the country? Like, how do we help? What what might our treatment approaches look like? What might our service look like?
1: That is a great question, Sam. And um, I, I do get that question, you know, from um, uh, different directions. And, you know, um, I, I know psychologists at heart want to help, you mm-hmm. know. I've seen them help, you know, respond in response to these, you know, humanitarian crises. Um, and you know, I think um, you know, not only coming from a trauma-informed lens and perspective, right, is important, but also knowing the community that you're serving, right? Um, not only I don't think cultural competency is enough, you know, I think. That cultural humility is very critical, you know. Um, you know, during this time, también also, I was like, you know, given I consult with ORR and different entities down here on the border, and when we had the influx of unaccompanied minors back in two thousand and fourteen and beyond, um, you know, I was seeing evaluations from other psychologists that responded to this humanitarian crisis you know um and you know i know the intention is good mm-hmm. you know the intention is good to help you know they wanted help right mm-hmm. But in reviewing some of the evaluations, I was concerned, you know, because, Mm -hmm. you know, some clinicians, not only psychologists, but psychiatrists, licensed clinical social workers and and Mm -hmm. other mental health professionals, they do these type of mental health evaluations with this population and and seeing the the assessments being used that Mm -hmm. aren't standardized and the misdiagnosis. Mm -hmm. I was seeing IDD, ASD. I was like, oh, my God, what's going on here, right? Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, there are no guide. Lines in the field, you know, mm-hmm. of working with this population. And that's something me and some colleagues at the National Latino Psychological Association, we did a task force lasted over two years, we published guidelines, professional guidelines um, uh, for psychological evaluations used in immigration proceedings. Mm-hmm. Right now, we're in talks with APA's practice directorate, so we can, you know, move the needle there, so to have them support those as well. Mm-hmm. But you know, but yeah, I think training uh, standards in the field, um, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, that cultural competency, humility, right, is very important for psychologists.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, all all jokes aside to to personalize it, what I'm hearing you say is like, hey, Sam, if you were to go down here and try to help, you might do more harm than good because you need to do the training. You need to have a cultural competence and humility that is is a deep understanding of the community you're serving. And that's going to take time. I think that that, that's an important message too, Alfonso, like the the desire to help. Hey, that's great. But- Mm -hmm. We've yeah. also got to come at this with like a, an informed stance. You need to to be prepared for this.
1: Absolutely. I I, I like this book. It's called, it's by mm-hmm. Ethan Waters. It's called mm-hmm. The Globalization of the American Psyche. Um, mm-hmm. And it talks about that. He's a journalist. He's not even a mental mm-hmm. health professional. He talks about this, mm-hmm. you know, how the U.S. And, you know, how we are very, you know, um, very quick to help and render aid in national mm-hmm. disasters around the globe. But but sometimes we do more harm than good, right? Mm-hmm. If we're trying to do CBT in a Rwanda, for example, mm-hmm. you know, um,
0: mm-hmm. and yeah, that's a really good book to read. Mm-hmm. Thank you for the recommendation, too, Alfonso. I, I think many of us have been a, a, exposed as psychologists to this language of like trauma informed care than ever before. But every now and then when I meet other psychologists, they'll give me this look like what do you mean, Sam, trauma informed? What what is that? What does that look like then? What how does that change the care to be trauma informed if ORR or these other organizations we've mentioned are more trauma informed? What would what would that look like?
1: I think um if appropriate treatment was provided for this population and highlighted trauma informed care both in the in the medical and psychological care of these, of these individuals, children and Mm -hmm. families, um, we would see, um, you know, attention, uh, to, um, to these symptoms that will provide some relief and support, Mm -hmm. right. And, And would help with, you know, um, prevention for further trauma mm-hmm. and exacerbation of these symptoms and 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 help provide you know strategies and skills that this population really need in order for them you know to feel human
0: mm-hmm. yeah absolutely alfonso it was such a pleasure to talk with you today thank you for for sharing your expertise and experience with us all and uh, learning from you today I, i'm both heartbroken and inspired that there is a great deal of work that we can do here and i think the heartbreak is is added by the the fact that as you say that many of these policies remain in place or or they've changed a the name but many of the the skeletons exist um so Alfonso, I'm I'm deeply appreciative of you taking the time to be here to, to educate us and help us understand this uh, much better. I'm curious, should people want to learn more about your research, this work, uh, where can they go?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so during this time, during the pandemic, beginning stages of the pandemic, me and some colleagues in the field were like, we need to do something right mm-hmm. we need we we need to do something because you know many populations that are voiceless are being are are significantly affected by this pandemic across many domains and you know especially the, under the immigration umbrella you know so we we developed we we co-founded the uh, Latinx Immigrant Health Alliance mm-hmm. um and that website www. LatinImmigrantHealthAlliance.org, um, you know, provides resources, you know, for for psychologists and for scholars in the field on on what I mentioned and among you know we talk, we also work with uh, United We Dream, the leading advocacy organization in Washington DC that helps Sadaka recipients. We do clinical work and, and health webinars for them too. Um, so it provides many resources. We have policy reports, we have research presentation talks. You know, at, at different levels, and and those resources help. You know, available there at the, with Leha. You know, is one one way to obtain important resources, and also you know my website at the university you know has up to date resources on on the research that we're doing, um, okay. and uh, you know and, and clinical work as well. So, and then also your professional associations. I'm in okay. Texas, you know, the Texas Psychological Association. We have APA as well. You know, I know right now the advocacy coordinating committee is working hard, right, to Absolutely. to not only highlight issues issues of the guild, the profession of mm-hmm. psychology, but other social justice issues that, that need, to, to need more
0: attention, and, and providing those resources for psychologists is important. Oh, fantastic. Thank you for, for taking your time and, and being here with us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I'm Dr. Samuel Lesgarten, and this has been The Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists. As a reminder, all episodes provide general information for discussion purposes only and don't serve as formal clinical advice or continuing education.